0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 201, brought to you in association with SMART. And the enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Alan Vaxman, managing partner and co founder of Digital Horizon, to talk about investment risk. Digital Horizon is an investment company which combines an international venture fund with a venture builder that creates and scales technology startups. We'll hear more about them later, but as a fresh LFP main course topic, Alan suggested investment risk, which was a new one that I was pleased to dive into specifically. Alan has a very rounded background, which has given him experience of risk from many directions. He's currently chairman and co-founder of Digital Horizon, a director at Yes Growth and a director at SteadyPay. He's worked in South Africa, UK, Israel and Russia, including at the larger end of the spectrum for PwC, KPMG and Goldman Sachs. Okay, so having last week written about a million words for LFP 200, a deep dive into the nature and philosophy of technology and technique, as well as how they impact people, culture and civilization. let's keep this intro brief. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Alan. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mark. So I'm particularly pleased to be joining you today. Obviously, the main reason is your magnificence. And there are some other ancillary reasons, which is actually, amazingly enough, this is only the second face-to-face pod recording I've done in two years, which I would never have imagined a couple of years ago. As I say, last week I had to write 10,000 words, which is much harder than just interrupting people and <laughs> making them lose their thread. And... Um, also, Bridget and I decided to, which was a bad move, actually, in terms of stock selection and investment, uh, we picked the wrong stock with, with COVID. and We both came down with ba 2 which turned out not to be a good idea in that we were literally wiped out for over a month. I mean, as in completely wiped out for an over a month. And funnily enough, amongst our clan, three other members of the clan had COVID at the time. Two of them must have had BA1 because they were a bit under the weather for three or four days mm-hmm. um, and another one all these three are 20 somethings and, and another one had must have had ba2 because he was wiped out for weeks however however the, the media tell me that it's it's not the current thing so uh, being not well for a, a month from some bioweapon i lose track of whether it's america's is not a thing and therefore i needn't bother so anyway it's been quite interesting coming into london for the, only the second time this year and um, we're in regent street here where the offices are and actually, I was quite surprised as, as to how quiet it is on Regent Street. We're recording this the Tuesday after Easter, so it's family holidays. So actually, I thought there'd be quite a lot of shoppers out. Although some people will, will have been away for holidays, so. What's your perception as somebody who's a, a central Londoner, or, or the West End, perhaps it's called, about London returning to, quotes normal, old normal, new normal, or, or, or whatever? Is it just quiet this week? Was it busier a week ago? Or?
2: Yeah, I think people are still just coming back, Mike. And I think, as you mentioned, face-to-face meetings, some risks are worth taking. You know, then you have to go back to some kind of normal. We are social human beings, and I'm not sure that all of us want to live just always screen for the rest of our lives. Is it going completely back to normal? Doesn't look like it. I think COVID has profoundly changed some of our behaviors, especially where we invest in technology. It's normal for people to meet now remotely. It's normal to have a one two days off work, so it is a bit quieter in offices from what I see. Yeah, we can talk about this quite a lot. But is it completely back to how it was? I don't think so. I think it is a bit quieter, especially on Fridays and maybe Mondays, Tuesdays and Monday now. I sincerely hope, and I don't see it in the central London, that this is very quiet. Sometimes it's a very busy day here.
1: Ah, oh, good, I'm glad it's busy sometime. I was singing the praises in the last episode of Ian McGilchrist, and uh, listening to you then re- makes me recall a conversation between Ian McGilchrist and Jordan Peterson, respectively, a, a practising psychiatrist and a practising psychotherapist, and they had a complete meeting of minds on, from a psychiatric and psychotherapeutic perspective, but it applies to all perspectives, that... It is a radically different process and experience to do psychotherapy or psychiatry face-to-face than it is to do it over the phone or over, over pixels. There is something, um, and obviously from a therapeutic perspective, there's something very important about all the breadth of our indescribable humanity and, and, and senses and all that that you pick up by being with someone. And uh, as I've said, at a more sort of um, prosaic level, then one of the things that actually I always liked about doing a podcast in the past when it was... Face to face is that you meet a human being and you chat, and quite often, walking to the lift, you know, you you, you find the most interesting things. And then, you know, for example, the, the last one I did face to face, I was talking to the chap after the podcast last autumn. We were walking to the lift, and he happened to mention that the founders of his company also owned a huge chunk of Queen's Park Rangers football <laughs> club, which had no relevance to me whatsoever. But that was sort of, you know, just pretty interesting in itself. And in terms of the balance of old and new ways of doing things, then, um, as I mentioned on the podcast before, What people have said to me is that they've been pretty oppressed and pretty amazed at how well companies have continued to turn the handle and can keep the machine going from home. But the one challenge is the challenge of creativity. If you're getting together, if you're chatting or there's a drinks thing or coffee, it's the non-lateral, it's the right brain stuff that enables you to think of something that you wouldn't have thought of before, that if you were doing sort of too linear a process. So talking of nice places and and travelling, so very briefly, uh, because I ain't been there, you were saying that you've been to the Galapagos Islands, which sounds quite nice.
2: Yeah, so we decided, you know, after to, it's going back to the same COVID, after about two and a half years of sitting basically just around UK in this, we need to kind of take the kids somewhere, see somewhere where the nature is less touched by the COVID than everyone was. And uh, it's an absolutely amazing experience. I think they've done an incredible job in preserving the islands. I lived around the area you could see from my background, South Africa and obviously Mauritius there, Seychelles, so If you compare those islands to Galapagos, the way that they maintain the nature, for me, it's absolutely superior. So I think the other thing is you really see, you know, that Galapagos is all connected to Darwin and to the evolution and how they link themselves. Is you can see, that adaption is the most important thing in this. How the animals in different parts of this island actually adapted to different conditions in each island. And as we adapt now to COVID, to new environment, to new risks, this is how the animals adapted there in Galapagos. But highly recommend it. It's an incredible experience for the adults, for the kids, and uh, it's interesting. You know, it's a new settlement, Galapagos. People really started living there is only 1835, and uh, there was no indigenous population. So everybody there is almost an immigrant, <laughs> except the animals. The other thing, which is last thing about Galapagos, which completely you can see how the energy consumption and evolution of energy really flew from whaling, which they were doing, turtles, which were used for illness, to oil. And now we're talking about wind, solar, more of this. So there is this continuous evolution, how we light our houses, how we warm our houses, and how people become enriched around energy.
1: Yes, as Heraclitus and the Buddha said at roughly the same time, everything's always changing, uh, which is both a threat and an opportunity, of course. So I mentioned that in terms of changing, you moved around the world. We haven't done any past life hypnotherapy or anything like that, but maybe in the prior life you were... A Siberian nomad or something, <laughs> and you always have this sort of wanderlust. I've got some friends like that, actually, who always move to a new place at a far greater frequency than you. Say it's wonderful for about two years, and the third year I get bored, and then they move again. They must have been nomads in a, in, in a prior life. So briefly, what's your sort of background? And obviously sort of wave the flag for, for risk, so the audience know which particular angle you're coming from risk, and what is it that drives you to keep moving around the world, and, and where are you going next? Because I'd like to know, because I want to go somewhere else.
2: I think one thing is a person who moved like four five countries, actually, in my life, never confuse tourism with immigration. That's that's, there is a huge difference between, really. My family, when I was a young kid, left Soviet Union 35 years ago. I grew up in Israel and South Africa. I worked in both of them, in banking, in risk, and uh, then becoming a consulting partner for PwC, really looking at capital markets and market risk. Worked in Russia for about, what now, almost nine years as a chief risk officer coming back to about, what, four years, really thinking, what is my career? I've done so much risk in finance. Where the real risks are? What's the next opportunity? And I was about 38 years old at the time, and decided, look, I'm experienced enough to understand now risk and spend it there 18 years, almost 20, dealing with all kinds of illness. What's the next? The world is, as you say, changing in this? And that's how I ended up in a kind of really on the whole different side of risk, In VC, running a VC firm, starting really from building new companies and then moving to investing. Because I think you first need to understand how it's built before you start spreading money around. And that's the main risk, I think, which you find in investment firms and VC firms. Most of them are just financial professionals. They don't know how it's built. They don't understand, really. They just look at the figures. That's why we have an investment fund and we have a venture builder where we actually, all of us, are co-found companies. To understand this. So that's kind of brief. My career, again, as you mentioned, worked in South Africa, Israel, UK, Russia, back in the UK. Where's next? We currently have offices here in London, in Tel Aviv and in Dubai. So far, we think it's a good kind of spread, I guess, between different cultures and different type of companies and how they grow and investments. But uh, we are actively looking uh, at some of the more South Europe, which is a good, is a good base we're actively also looking around Asia and we invest in this more around Indonesia, India. this is interesting markets right now.
1: well, moving on to the main course and investment risk, as we were talking about beforehand, one could do a podcast on risk once a week and still never have said everything about just FS risk in a few years' time, and there are always new types of risk and in terms of your diversification strategy there just of geography, I came across a new term that I hadn't come across so directly. I mean, of course, I was aware of it in the past, but it was never such a thing, which is jurisdictional risk. In terms of being flat on my back for about four weeks, I managed to watch even more YouTube than than I do normally. <laughs> and there's a good channel I can recommend called The the Nomad Capitalist, who helps, I think, seven or eight-figure entrepreneurs diversify in particular jurisdictional risk and passport risk and, and all this kind of stuff. And that was a concept that it strikes me as being increasingly relevant. I mean, prime examples being in, in Canada, where the uh, the liberal tyrant suddenly said, if you gave money some GoFundMe to people who disagreed with me a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're not going to freeze your bank accounts and, and all this kind of stuff. But also uh, expands the whole vast range of tax rates going through the roof, regulations going through the roof in places, a whole bunch of complexities which go into how attractive a country is or isn't for business. And, and in particular, I like one of his phrases, uh, legacy brands, the likes of the UK and the US are a legacy brand, so you know he's quite pro, I think, places like Georgia and Serbia and um, and, and all that kind of stuff. So not only is everything changing, but there's a sort of a meta-changing about the meta-changing, because in the past I wouldn't have seen jurisdictional risk within the so-called West as being that much of a thing. Sure, I mean, being in France and Germany is, is slightly different, but in particular I think jurisdictional risk, to your being spread around the world, is only going to get more important as and when... CBDCs are in, introduced, and a bit like the response to COVID, one can imagine that in some places, metaphorically speaking, a bit like in Melbourne, the cops would be beating the shit out of the people. In other places, I mean, I think Turkey was an example that Nomad Capitalist gave, he's got a place in Turkey. Yes, they had rules, but nobody, nobody obeyed them. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so jurisdictional risk is, is, is a new thing. And, and how do you see that from an investment perspective? I mean, a simple example is about two or three podcasts ago, we had a Polish VC talking about the benefits of East Europe, maybe more than two or three weeks ago. And he was very keen on Ukraine. But that's an extreme example of jurisdictional risk right now.
2: Look, I think I'm I'm very happy that you mentioned it, because doing risk for many time, for many years and investments, mixing those two, the only thing which helps us is diversification, because none of us can guess. All of it is a guessing. Today, we think US is a safe place, the UK is a safe place. Tomorrow, Serbia is a safe place. The only way that you do is you try to diversify it across different. So it is a jurisdiction diversification. So we traditionally run, as I said, Dubai, Tel Aviv, UK. We've got a fund in Mauritius, Mauritius, South West. Why? Because traditionally, South Africans and uh, Indian a lot of investment goes through Mauritius, which is this. So by having this different diversified structure. And continuously invest in different regions. So you had a lot of VCs saying we only invest in Silicon Valley, which was wonderful. You made lots of money on that. But if you look at the longer term perspective, right now it's a a red ocean. It's really, yes, absolutely still huge in the biggest market. But clearly you need lots of money, enormous amount of effort to really penetrate this market. Lots of pyramids, because as we can see now by the, I mean, some of the fintechs where we work now, dropping 65, 75% on the market valuations, because the pyramids were created there, to an extent. So it's a very, I guess, market where it's not guessing where it's good. It's not guessing today it's a good jurisdiction, To tomorrow it's a bad jurisdiction. It's been diversified for the investors across assets, across countries, across stages of the investment. Another very typical thing for VC is we are in early stage VC. Well, maybe sorry this happens in early stage, or maybe in late stage. Why do you want to be in one stage? Maybe you need liquidity, so you want later stage. Maybe you wanted more returns, so you will go into early stage. So that diversification across everything is, I think, that's what we live. And I completely agree with you with the introduction of CBDs. What is a CBD at the end of the day? In somewhere where you can track how the money is spent, where you're spending the money. It's not this Web 3. It's a control mechanism at the end of the day. And with that, you're really introducing even more jurisdiction because somebody will tell you where to spend your money.
1: Yes, so anyway, so one of the things that, uh, say, we look at differently in the 2020s compared to, I don't know, 1980s, 1990s, is jurisdiction. It didn't used to be such a thing, and it will be such a thing. And I think the other phenomena about the 2020s, which definitely relates to the way that technology changes the world extremely rapidly, is it's not just that, as per Heraclitus and the Buddha, things are changing, it's they're changing at a crazy rate right now.
2: Absolutely. Um,
1: I did actually include a line which I didn't say in the LFP 200 about something that was regarded as a mental illness when the LFP started, but now is sort of obligatory to teach sort of infants in schools. But the rate of changes is, is very crazy as well. So going back to more traditional investment perspectives, one of the things that used to drive me around the bend, still does to a certain extent, when I was a fund manager is that people would talk about modern portfolio theory, by which they meant a paper written by Markowitz, whoever it was, in the 1950s, which says, this ain't like the world at all, but let's just as a fag packet assume that you know volatility is a, is a measure of risk. And so uh, you get, and we touched on this in a podcast last year with Smart US, where the US authorities or regulators are as crazy as the ones over here, and you get this concept of high-risk investments like equities, because they can go up and down, and low-risk investments like bonds, embedded in, in pension planning in the US and UK, for sure. Is as you approach retirement age, you should invest in low-risk assets. Well, look, there's been a bloody 40-year bull market in, in bonds, and now they're tanking. And, and they, at this rate, of inflation, they're going to keep tanking. That ain't low risk. Not only is the capital price going to collapse, you're guaranteed a yield for the foreseeable future, which is negative in real terms. If you have sufficient funds, or well, even if you don't have sufficient funds, bunging all your funds in a bond at the age of 60, 65 or 70 would be nuts. Whereas putting it into real assets, it's the other way around. And this touches on a number of things, one of which is that people, regulators, plenty of people in FS, frankly, don't understand what they mean when they say the word risk. This misunderstanding that the short-term price volatility is a measure measure of medium-term risk, which it ain't. If I buy, say, the FTSE 100 today, it's going to go up and down a hell of a lot the next five years, but it's roughly speaking... A real asset or a proxy for a real asset just as if I buy a building in in Regent Street okay the price is gonna change but I assume in 10 20 years time it will have roughly speaking been a real asset so how do you see this thing around there's a kind of legacy issue here which is people are still considering risk as short-term volatility whereas anybody who knows anything about markets goes no 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 that's how it was the last 40 years it has changed
2: yeah I think people traditionally has got those buckets this are low-risk assets low-risk assets Actually, from a risk perspective, remember, risk is the probability multiplied by likelihood at the end of the day. Yeah? And uh, the probability of you losing money on bonds is very high. Well, you lost money because the bonds are not tracking inflation. You can argue it's 5% or 15% depending on the segment you're sitting in. But there's no bonds which give you even 3 or 2% and they're all in the negative area. So you lost money. And that was very clear where the interest rates were in absolute negatives. That's the only way forward for the bonds is negative. And it was quite a few years. But no, we still get a lot of advisors coming in and says, you need to allocate most of your portfolio in bonds. That's basically just lose money. It's not a risk. It, it's, it's a certainty. <laughs> Next, uh, saying let's put money into kind of gold and US dollar and uh, all this. Very conservative. It's a certainty that US dollar will only go up when interest rates go up, and interest rates only go up when inflation figures are going up. That means you're losing money again. This is how this occurred. So for me, what most of people advise and is a very safe asset. it's not even a risk, it's a certainty of loss to a certain extent. The only thing which you can be calm about, it's not a huge loss. It's not like 60, 70 percent loss. You're steadily losing about 10 to 12 percent of your, of your hard-earned cash through the... Now, whatever regulator then wants you don't put money into equities. Hypes, uh, mem stocks—we all heard about Robinhood and uh, all of that stuff. And all this—the only real thing there is: are you able to exit in time? Because if you invested even in, in those hyped stocks, they went up 150 to 100 percent, and they dropped about 35, 40. You're still pretty much high up. You know, if you invested, let's say, in hyped stock like CrowdStrike or Moderna—I'm just talking about listed. You know, you're still very much up if you just invested before COVID, and it doesn't matter how. on this. Saying that, that's absolutely right. The volatility is high, but your real return is much higher. Then the volatility is low, but your real return is negative. And that's where the new world of risk is. As you mentioned, the rate of change is high. You need to track that change and track the real assets or real equities or real assets which track and go along with this change that are less impacted by the short-term volatility. For me, and a lot of part of my portfolio, due to obviously my occupation, almost isn't PE and VC, because most of PE and VC, you are tracking the change, because that's where we invest. Yes, you can have losses. So normal VC portfolio, if it's especially early stage, out of 10, one is great, three survive, the rest die. But one is so great, it covers all. So that's the logic of the VC.
1: Or the prayer of the VC.
2: (laughs) The prayer, but it's it's actually consistently worked like that through the technological change. Why it's going very fast is that the incumbent companies just don't catch up. The whole dream of transformation of a large corporate, which suddenly becomes an absolutely this, just didn't work. Just didn't work for anywhere. So for me, this is um, very important, I think, also on the risk is changing that mentality. Because we're going to get people into very negative territory in the next four or five years if you're continuously advising them keep cash on account by bonds. And that's the only thing you do.
1: Yes, and that reminds me of the debate in the 1920s about what risk was, which has been covered in a book by former governor of the Bank of England, Lord King and John Kay, a joint book, in that there was a debate in the 1920s. I think it's between Keynes and the statisticians. Mm -hmm. Statisticians said, oh, we've got all these numbers... They didn't have spreadsheets, we know that. But anyway, metaphorically speaking, we can use our spreadsheet and we can tell you what the risk is and it'll be a number. And Keynes, although this would involve Keynes being right, which isn't so much, but anyway, um, (laughs) these days. The other view was that risk is about uncertainty. You don't know. I might trip over walking down your staircase and break my leg. It's possible. Attaching a probability to that is meaningless, like to say, oh, you've got one in a million chance of breaking your leg. You don't know the future. So there are these two very different views of the the future, which, going back to Ian McGilchrist, is probably a left brain and a right brain. The left brain perspective, left hemispheric perspective, says, oh, we can calculate and we know it and we'll get a number and that's it and the right brain saying, who knows, I don't know, it could be anything really. And I think that in terms of how one integrates the two, because the, the correct thing is to have an integration of the, the, the yin and the yang, the thesis and antithesis, is to realise that in some circumstances, this kind of historic, calculated-on-a-spreadsheety perspective on risk will not work, in particular in periods of discontinuity in markets and, and, and the economy and the world. And we're going through a very discontinuous period at the moment, what with inflation lockdowns, CBDCs, a 40-year bond market turning around. So we're in a period of discontinuity. And I think in a period of discontinuity, the theme is surely, and we'll look into the VCs with your experience, that actually what is required is this kind of more innate, intangible, Implicit understanding of risk that you get, as you say, very articulately when you're talking about your portfolio, by actually understanding the goddamn business, as opposed to, oh, yes, I worked for 30 years at Goldman's and then I set up a VC firm because I know about finance. Well, that's good, but you may not know, for the sake of argument, about clothing shops in Regent Street. You can play with this spreadsheet, but if you worked, should we say the other way around, you worked at Tommy Hilfiger, I'm looking at over the road, you started there at the age of 16 or something, and by the age of your 40, you, you know quite a bit about retail. <laughs> And if you know something about an industry from the inside, you can get out of this kind of mathematical, arithmetic perspective of risk. You understand the dynamics, and then you get a bit of a feel, oh, I see, if they shut down for a couple of years, that won't be good, uh, if inflation's high. and So how do you see this kind of implicit versus explicit perspective of risk? And, and maybe then we can relate that to, to the VC market, as you say, because there's geography, there's early stage, there's mid-stage, there's pre-IPOE stuff.
2: Yeah, I think one is that you learn to mix the expertise. Yeah, so. For example, we just learned, launched our new retail fund, retail focus, retail technology focus fund, and we joined it together with somebody who was operating large-scale retail for 30 years before they sold the business, both online and offline. So what we really see is the mixture between you need to understand the figures, and by no means saying let's forget about all the finance and start investing based on our gut feel, but you need to mix the two. And if you just go understand the spreadsheets, then you're really playing the same game as the central governments are playing. Let's put that much money in the interest will go up. You're really kind of at the mercy of people really having different agendas and having huge problems to solve, social problems, and this. You're not really investing in this. So for me to manage in it, check that who you work with has an understanding both intrinsic to the industry and a financial. You need to have it. Otherwise, they might be just operators. They don't know what they're doing with money. I think in my experience... You need to spend some time close to the money. Because money is very different to the real uh, thing sometimes. It's just a measure. The other thing you need to understand the reality. Not to mention a specific company, not to to not advertise it, but there is a company in Latin America which from zero to 150 million users scaled in two and a half years payments. Could you without tech do that? No, you couldn't. It's impossible. You would open one little shop and what then this. Can you get 153, almost three UKs, 2.5, 2.7, to be more precise, in less than three years, in 2.5? You couldn't. So technology allows you eventually enormous speed of adoption of your product, which wasn't possible today. That you need to understand. Then you need to dig into economics so that adoption would be completely bullshit. I mean, I give you free everything, which a lot of those guys do. But the logic of that speed is quite important. to understand. And then what do you need? You need to understand marketing. So in our firm, we've actually been established by finance and marketing, really, competencies, because marketing, in the digital marketing, how fast this spreads and how that adapts, is really absolutely key. I'll give you an example which is always fascinating. Do you know what
1: click trust is? Not off the top of my head, no. Can I phone a friend? <laughs>
2: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> click trust is the how much each country, society, really trusts in the validity of a click as a legal transaction. Some societies... Trust very little. Some really trust a lot. And based on that, click trust is really how adapted are digital products, how fast. So it's a pure marketing concept and it's in your head. It's not a spreadsheet, it's not a financier. It's really market research shows you that in one country, the click really means for the person that this is an open account, for example, and this is binding and it's okay. In other country, I don't trust anything, I want to see the lawyer, you know, and I want a signature. In third country, I don't care about the lawyers, the signature. I don't care about your clique. I want to see the cash in the guy who gives me because I only believe in commerce. You know, a lot of it is Southeast Asia this way, still that way. So there's a lot of concepts which you need to go that, but not sure. It's, it's a long answer. <laughs> no, <laughs>
1: well, I think it's a good because it demonstrates, in many ways I'm thinking, actually talking about McGilchrist, is in my mind. I've been listening to him over the weekend, but McGilchrist and his divided brain, he said when he was young, he was struck by the radical difference perspective between platonic view of the world and Aristotelian. Plato has got his essences. There's this ideal chair, of which these are just sort of, you know, poor versions. And Aristotle came from the opposite direction, which is there's no such thing as an abstraction. We create the abstraction, there's your chair, there's that chair, there's that chair over there, they're all different. And we abstract the idea of a, of a chair from it. And of course, McGillacris decades, uh, having been both in English literature professor and then a psychiatrist is integrating these two worldviews and in terms of portfolio management you use the phrase finance but one could equally thinking back to my days in investment apply the phrases top-down and bottom-up they're nice and simple Plato and Aristotle top-down and bottom-up is more obvious for those people who didn't do sort of Greek philosophers at school and from the top-down perspective okay I've got ten shillings and sixpence. How do I invest that? Oh, I, I better not buy bonds because yeah, Alan agreed with me I'm having those. Have a few equities, I have a bit of VC and this. So I have to do that process, which is the top down. But equally, and this particularly applies in, in the equity world, and absolutely I'm sure that's equity squared for, for VCs. There's no point in me just buying an early stage fintech because it's an early stage fintech. Then, then the bottom up really comes in, you know? Let's just take Cedars for the sake of argument. Don't know how many people are listed on Cedars at the moment, let's say there's twenty four companies raising money. I shouldn't just like buy one of those at random because it might be a really, really bad thing. So it's integrating the two. And in terms of integrating the two, let's just start with the top-down perspective. So you were talking before about traditional assets. And I think actually, when you were talking, I was thinking, well, actually, pretty much, just to simplify things, before 2000, traditional assets were only cash, equities, bonds. Like if you do a pension fund in the, in the 80s, they've had those. Yeah. VC wasn't really a thing outside of America, say, before 2000. Over here, it's really taken off quite a lot, and it is now. So just from a top-down perspective, how do you see VC as an investable asset class, using the abstraction top-down perspective? How do you see it? If If you were retiring tomorrow and you had a pension fund, and I said, oh, you've got a million in your pension, So you think, okay, right, I'm going to invest some in cash, some in bonds, some in equities, which again is an abstraction because equities per se, or which bloody market, I'll invest some in VC. So just a very old-fashioned, old-schooly approach from the top down before we come to the bottom up and then you know, early stage or later stage. How do you see VC as an asset class compared to these other ones? I mean, how correlated is it? How non-correlated is it? Or is it just something completely different in your mind?
2: So not going into the detail of the VC, generally VC is much less correlated than any other traded assets. Because anything traded assets is subject to monetary policy. And we can see how much monetary policy really means now to markets. Yeah? Saying that the allocations to VCs, it really depends on your investment horizon, how long. yeah, Because maybe your pension and you're looking for another 10, 15 years, maybe you're looking for two, I don't know. Yeah? But the closer it is to IPO, the more correlated it is. The less close to APO, the longer your money is away, but less correlated is because the cycle is positive. The average location, as I said, anywhere between the smallest that I see is around 10, 15, and a really maximum is around 25. So you're not going to put all your money into VC and PE. It's still regarded as quite volatile money for a reason not only returns. Returns, actually, VC funds give quite consistent, if you look at them. Through the cycle, they're averaging around, anywhere around 22 to 29. Our fund runs at about 40% IRR right now, but we're only four years, so I think over eight years, we're only go also going to go, I mean, I would love to say we're only going to be 40. I think if we're managing around 25, 30, it's good. You know, that's a consistent return, because you also go through the cycles. So to answer your question, the least right now, you invest in change of technology, see how much, it. at least put 10, 15% into it. You know, and we, we still see, especially in Europe, more in continental Europe, we are a bit better here, but not by much, is really most of investments are not there. It's just very, very, comparatively to the US, Israel or the other ones which are more active in this, we're still sitting and trying to invest in bonds. The correlation-wise, if you've got a multi-stage, what I call diversified VC portfolio, you can make it very uncorrelated to cycles in monetary policy, Markets going up and down, really, because you'll have some earlier stage which is less related to it. I think the, almost, I would say, the financial crime, which a lot of funds, larger funds, is, are committing. There is no allocation. Oil allocation is so tiny, it's unbearable it's to you as an investor in a special fund, you don't even benefit from it at all. You benefit from you know, oil price and interest rates which completely, you know, market-driven. And uh, today we have an oil crisis. Tomorrow we don't have an oil crisis. Yeah? And the prices there is as volatile as any VC, if you think about oil.
1: Okay, so that's nice and clear. Then just taking this good kind of a listener has got a million-pound portfolio or a 10 million-pound portfolio, and let's say they're 60 and, and they've got good life expectancy because, you know, if you're 95, then you don't want to be investing in a 15-year fund. Yeah. If you're 95, unless you like your children, you don't want to be buying vintage port on Premier. You won't be around to drink it. Maybe because it's a relatively new asset class. Maybe because historically it's only been for big players who can write large checks out. But just from an amateur perspective, VC is quite a challenging industry to invest in. So for the sake of argument, let's say I have a million pounds and I go, oh, well, I'll put a third in equities, i a third in VC, and I'm stupid, I'll put a third in cash. Because maybe I need the cash. Because I'm going gaga and i need a care home or the NHS doesn't work or whatever. Then, within the equities, I can say, gosh, no idea... I will allocate myself into some ooh, index tracker thingamajigs, some in the UK, some in Europe, some in Asia, and, and some in America. And I can do that for transactions with iShares or something like that. In terms of, and this is more sort of a, a, a sort of VC stock selection kind of thing, really, as we started, VC is an abstraction. All you guys aren't doing precisely the same thing all over the world, by definition. You're all different, doing different things in different sectors of the market, at different stages, and different geographies, and different technologies, and some are not in technology. So how on earth do I allocate my third of my portfolio into a good spread of VC investments? Because let's say it's a million. I'm not going to stick £333,333 in one VC fund and hope that VC gets it right. Obviously, I need to diversify within VCs and across industries, but... As far as I'm aware, there isn't a simple way to do that, is there? I just buy a bit of your fund and I think, oh, who was on last year on the podcast? I'll oh, buy a bit of theirs and buy those. And, and there isn't generally a secondary market in these things. So let's just talk about the, the realpolitik. A the listener listens to this, hears what you say and thinks, hmm, yeah, actually, I do need more VC in my portfolio. How the bloody hell do they do it in a simple, cost-effective manner if they don't know the industry?
2: Yeah, so I think is one of the trends in the industry which we started, I think we were, what, about four years ago, we are one of the first multi-stage fund, where we don't ask you, as a person to understand, which stage you want to invest. And also, we don't ask you, really, which jurisdiction. And if you ask us which one is, we've got 40% in the US, 30% in Asia, 25-30% in Europe, so we're quite diversified. Now we actually saw, what, about three, four months ago, I don't remember, Sequoia, which is one of the biggest world funds, pretty much doing the same thing, saying, you give the money to Sequoia, we will allocate. So no more early stage, no more late stage, because it is confusing. It's very confusing even to pension funds, which got professional investors. It's clearly very confusing to, let's call it, high net worth individual, which saved about two to three million. That's one thing, how you do it. Try to find a multi-stage fund. You know, obviously, we here are not impartial, we are multi-stage fund, but at least that this Then is... Try to find a fund which is diversified across jurisdiction. We discussed about it. If they say to you, all our money goes into Western Europe only, maybe that's not a great idea. You've got Southeast Asia. You've got U.S. You've got Middle East Israel. If you look at by the amount of unicorns, you've got number one U.S. Kind of China, but very difficult with them in this. But if you look at more market-driven kind of thing, India is second. Israel is third. What do you mean you're only in U.S.? You know, so you need to be in this markets. So just find the one. Which works at least across so you don't have to choose because you're not really this. Second is about the timing. Very simple advice. Funds that invest in software are quicker than funds that invest in hardware. Anything which has got to do with biotech, anything got to do with physical hardware, is long, more expensive, longer cycles than this. Anything got to do with software is faster. It's easier, spreadable, it's cheaper to make. And you return uh, this. This is the case. Yes, the innovation coming of hardware could be huge, but it's really difficult in a long time. You do have great examples on this, uh, I don't know, like Tesla, yeah? But it takes a long, long time to really get there. So software is quicker, in essence. Hardware is usually longer. Biotech is usually longer. Then try to, try to get into somewhere where it's easy to spread, the, easy to spread the technology. And what do I mean by that? The less human interaction needed, less physical product manufactured, the faster it is. Why do we invest in FinTech a lot? Not only backgrounds. You don't have a physical product. There is nothing to manufacture. You can spread 150 million in two years and basically there's nothing physical. Because money is not physical. It's all electronic right now. Same with software. But the simplest one, look for multi-stage, look for multi-country. This is uh, the one. We are at the moment building a platform which will accommodate smaller tickets, which you will be able to work with VCs and syndication. There are some platforms on the market already. I think they're not very diversified. They're very focused again, US focused to a certain extent. But they would argue they're trying to diversify. We're also looking for quite Asia-based diversified platform, which for smaller tickets. But at least those two, I think, would work if you choose Indianness. Try not to get into very specialised.
1: Okay, so that's clear. So I take your point about investing in a, a fund that's diversified in the first place, or in a bunch of diversified funds. But again, VC is still relatively challenging to invest in, because as I understand it, you mentioned Sequoia, let's say Sequoia might be raising a new fund in September of this year. If I happen to be investing in September of this year, I can invest in their fund. But actually, this Off the top of my head, no secondary market in that for quite a while until I raise the next one. Let's say you raised a friend last year and maybe you're going to raise one next year. So there is this thing which is... I don't know what a good metaphor is, but it might be like that building in Regent Street over there, which is I can't invest in that building in Regent Street over there unless they're sort of selling it on the day that I want to invest. So it's almost like VC, and there probably is one of these, VC needs, I don't know, an ETF or something like that that's sort of daily traded. So what about this problem of, of access? So you get a pension fund, your pension comes, out, let's say, in December this year, and then you, you want to allocate a third of it into VC because you understand it. it but no, quotes, no one's doing a VC fundraise in December, so you can't actually invest in it. There's yeah. as various as windows. It's like it would be like trying to invest in IPOs. Oh, there aren't any this month Well, I can't invest in them. Yeah.
2: So I think exactly like we are, and there are some funds now, we always have an open fund, which you can invest in. And to solve the second problem, which is liquidity, is your secondary trading. And if you do have a multi-stage, it means later equities, there is liquidity in the secondary if you want to list. That's a very short answer. To yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's a
1: good one. And also, as I recall, there are more than one or two these days, VCs yeah. who have listed themselves on stock exchange to provide an indirect exposure to them, themselves.
2: I personally don't like that because as soon as you list yourself, you still become a part of overall volatility. doesn't matter what your portfolio is. It goes like that.
1: Yes, you shall see. Right, good. Okay, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I'd like to thank Alan for being the first person not to be a bunch of pixels as a guest. (laughs) It's certainly very different not being a bunch of pixels. He seems to be three dimensions, not two. And my brand partners at the podcast, Smart, is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Alan, we've touched on just only in passing a little bit about Digital Horizon. What would you like to tell the listeners out there? And you're obviously a great company already. And what would you need, if any listeners out there happen to have it, that would make you an even bigger and better company than you are today? So I think
2: we're really looking for... Everybody is looking for smart VCs. We're really always looking for smart LPs, smart investors, which will add a lot of value, both from that they have operational knowledge, financial knowledge, and something that will drive the, the business going forward. So, we really work well with investors which are corporate sometimes or which know how to operate a business, ex entrepreneurs, or very specialized funds which want certain things but actually have got the expertise. So, we are very careful around adding very smart investors to our portfolio because that drives our business, because we receive more insight. Actually, more interesting, clever people around our table. And that's how we grow a community to invest. The other message is uh, really coming from risk background, it's diversification. So, when you consider Digital Horizon, we diversify by jurisdiction, by stage, and by ability of the companies to scale fast. And that's why we're in FinTech and B2B says We discussed it, no physical real product. We don't really invest in this. So, we are able to give liquidity to our investors in the first two and a half years, that's what we've done already, as opposed to you waiting eight to ten. And after two and a half, three years, you return your money, and then you wait for the overlandish. So that diversification is really cool. Our big challenge is really to have the right mix of investors, which we want to do, in Europe, Asia, US, and to have that conversation with them as opposed to, you know, give us money and let us forget it and, and come back in 12 years.
1: <laughs> yes, you, you strike me as having some parallels with fintech boards that want smart angels. Exactly. Uh, if you're a desperate early stager and a naive entrepreneur, you might think you want money. Well, yes, that's necessary, but not really sufficient. You want money and, and expertise. And you mentioned in passing, Alan, But just for the clarification, for those people who are busy driving, jogging or baking a cake when listening to the show, the retail platform that you're working on, is that plans for the future?
2: Yeah, it will be launched in June. It's still not purely retail. It's still high net worth.
1: High being these days?
2: High being it's about a million plus of assets, of uh, liquid assets uh, that you you need to have because of the regulatory really constraints. It is going to be based in Asia. And, uh, but for open for all the illness, and that's for regulatory neutrality. So because what we see is that a lot of this is going to have a UK branch of it, so you can invest from there. Again, we are trying to liberalise VC, but it's not going to happen that's, uh, you know... And I also never suggest to anybody, if you've got 50,000 savings, that you really got to put uh, all of it in the VC. This is still a different type of assets. But what I think needs to change and really we're part of this change and we're happy to all invest, is that once you build some capital, you do invest in that changing world. Because you are sitting, and most of it, unfortunately, people are sitting and still investing like nothing is changing while sitting on Zoom. You should have been investing there too. And you don't have any exposure to that change. So that's uh, platform. June is the launch.
1: Excellent. And it's a good example in terms of, the successful entrepreneurs as to take london uh, geographically for fintech as per silicon valley that the capital needs to be recycled so that the most successful entrepreneurs in london fintech and in other tech sectors need to put some of their money back into the ecosystem to keep the whole ecosystem improving rather than just sort of taking the money and running and buying a sort of tropical island and uh, lots of palm trees for the beach. Well, time has always has gone past very quickly. And it's a very interesting conversation and, and, a, and a fresh conversation about risk. And I think in particular, I mean, we haven't touched on cryptos, I'm glad to say, but I think when it comes to cryptos, the statisticians, going back to the 1920s, wouldn't be the ones to ask for, which is they've got a spreadsheet of Bitcoin's price every day the last 10 years. That's interesting. But it's the people who say the future is uncertain. So I think the future is uncertain for those
2: I have one comment, you know, going through, I've been in investment banking through the Lehman Brothers, you know, uh, this. although I was more in corporate banking at the time. What's happening in crypto and in crypto trading, it's exactly the same thing as what's happening in derivatives. When we look at about the trading, all most of the people that I worked at the same time, which were creative, innovative, just took the same tools in trading, just took it to crypto. There's nothing absolutely... It's just different term for exactly the same leverage. Exactly <laughs> this. So... I think crypto will get to it.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, then we're starting to get back to de-dollarization and return to gold standards or commodity standards, which we touched on a little while ago. But I think the thing that's come out very clearly from what you're saying here is that in FS, and in particular, this is only leveraged in venture capital, which is a higher-risk asset than others, the undoubtedly discontinuous nature of the culture, the environment, the economics Today means that one needs to approach the whole question of investment risk, whether it's a personal investment, but what you're going to do with your own money, or professional investment risk, with a discontinuous frame of mind. It is no point, as financial journalists seem to do all the time, repeating mantras from 70 years ago, papers that nobody's ever read anymore, that started with, this is a simplifying assumption that won't, <laughs> won't, won't operate in the real world, and let's hope that the regulators catch up with that at some point. So, thank you very much that, Alan, and I wish you and Digital Horizon every success in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional, FS, and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via... Clarity.fm slash Mike We could
0: sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon Watching a happy moon Come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city, but with the faces so gray. Watch the firelight, dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.